Back in Romans, our theme tonight is law and grace. Two topical items that are well studied, well talked about, and yet so necessary if we're going to understand Romans. Law and grace. Law is how you behave. Grace is the overarching authority of God that governs everything that happens in our lives. God is over all. When we talk about law and grace, let's focus on law first of all. Sometimes in the Jewish faith, they use law simply for the first five books of the Old Testament. For example, in Romans chapter 3 and verse 21, law is mentioned in two different contexts. Now a righteousness from God apart from law, that's one context, has been made, to which the law and the prophets testify. The law was Moses' writings, the first five books. And that, to the Jewish mind, was the beginning, the main focus of their faith, of their obedience, of their walk with God. The Pentateuch comes out as number one. And then it was used in re reference to the Old Testament in general. Because the prophets echoed what was in the law, the judges, the uh, psalmist, the different writings of the Old Testament, they all were reflecting the teachings of the law. If they contradicted the law, they weren't acceptable. And they didn't contradict the law. They amplified it. They applied it. They showed it for what it is. They showed the way that you are to live in order to please God. And so the whole of the Old Testament was often referred to as the law. As, for example, in chapter 2 and verse 17. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship with God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you're instructed by the law, if you're convinced that you're a guide for the blind, a light for those in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. The law represents the whole of the Old Testament applying the law of Moses, applying the prophecies, applying the different poetic writings, applying them in different ways in different lives. The whole of the Old Testament comes under that category. But then also there was that earlier reference we looked at in chapter 3, verse 21, now righteousness from God apart from law, whether the is missing 
It's talking about law as a principle that governs human actions, that shows the will of God and the plan of God and the purpose of God. A righteousness apart from law. The law and the prophets testify to it. The whole of the Old Testament testifies to it. But the main focus is on law as a principle. God lays it down for us that we might know what is his will. And so sometimes, as in chapter 3 and verse 2, it refers simply to his divine commands. Chapter 3 and verse 2. Well, let's start with verse 1 to make sense of verse 2. What advantage then is there in being a Jew? Of what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, they've been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some did not have faith? Would their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar, as it's written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. It's talking about God's commands, God's word to us. We're to listen to what God has to say. And what God has to say reveals our sin. That is the one thing that we just don't like about law. Verse 20. Therefore no one will be declared righteous in the, his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. It's because of what God says that we realize how far short we fall. Or it may be acceptable to people around. Everybody else may say, you're doing well, you're, you're great. But what does God say? Because he's the one we're going to have to stand before one day. What does God say? What does God think of our actions? Will he excuse them? Will he look over them? Or overlook them? <laughs> and that's what some people see. They think that God is going to ignore our sin because, after all, he sets the highest standard, and then if you, if you don't make it, too bad. But try again, and try again, and try again, and keep on trying, and eventually, maybe one day, you will succeed. My dear friends, you, you try that with the human laws that we all have to observe. And sure, you may get away with it a couple of times because they don't know who it is who's done what. But if you get caught breaking the law, you expect to suffer the penalty of breaking the law. And yet we think that God, the God of all eternity, who sees all things, knows all things, understands all things, and created all things, that he's just going to overlook. No. The law reveals sin 
for what it is and shows us the way that our sin is going. But tragically, it also can stimulate sin. And this Paul points out in chapter 7, chapter seven and verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I wouldn't have known what sin was except through the law. I wouldn't have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandments. That's it. Sin seizes the opportunity afforded by the commandments and says, why don't you covet? Why don't you desire? Why don't you respond like everybody else does to the impulses of the flesh and of the mind? Apart from the law, sin was dead. Sin seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang into life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy, the commandment is holy, righteous and good. Then how did it happen? Well, we know the law is spiritual, but I'm unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I don't understand what I do, but what I want to do, I do not do. And what I hate, I do. Oh, isn't that the truth? We wouldn't have known what it was if we hadn't listened to the law and realized that this very action, this very thought was sin. And now we find ourselves in the grip of a power that is far greater than anything we can ever overcome in our own strength. And we're not called upon to overcome it in our own strength. But the law in many people stimulates that desire to sin. And yet there's that inevitable conflict between what we know is right and what we want to do and very often what we want to do we know is contrary to God and we know that we ought to overcome and we want to overcome and we try to overcome but there's something within us that prevents us from doing it then what hope is there for us Ah, this is the wonderful part. Because law is preparatory, prepares the way for our salvation. 
There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, chapter 8 says, because through, the, through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life. What? There's another law? Yes. Yes, there's the law of the sinful flesh. There's the law that is under condemnation. There's a law that seems to be controlling our minds and controlling our thoughts. And then there's the Spirit of God. And he comes along and he says, do you know why God says, do not do these things? Because it's going to bring death. And do you know why God says, do this? Put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Rely upon him. Because his law is that all who trust in the Lord Jesus will be forgiven, delivered, set free. Yes, victory is ours. Not because of any good thing that we've done or because of any strength that we have in ourselves but because of what he does in us and through us. Before, the, the, before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should reveal. That's how Paul wrote to the Galatians. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ. That's the intention of the law, to make us realize just how inadequate we are. It's so that we can be justified by faith. And now that faith has come, we're no longer under the supervision of the written law. We're no longer under the control of what has been said or written. We're under the control of the Spirit of God who's working in us to recreate us in a way that we could never, ever even imagine. You see, the law is full of promises. Look at chapter 10 and verse 4. In Romans chapter 10 and verse 4. Christ is the end of the law so that there might be righteousness for everyone who believes. You mean, I don't have to obey? Oh, yes. But the obedience doesn't come from your will and your determination and your decision to dot every I and cross every T and your determination to try and please God. No. It comes from the moving of the Spirit of God in your heart, in your life, that changes your way of thinking so that suddenly, and maybe unexpectedly, you're seeing things from a different perspective. I got new glasses this week. probably noticed the frames are somewhat different. I'm seeing things from a different perspective. Oh, my old glasses were good. Ah, but my new glasses 
I'd been to see the optician. I'd had my eyes tested. And he said, oh, we've got to change this, change that. Now, I see things differently. Friends, what are the spectacles you're wearing on your spirit? Provided by the Holy Spirit? Giving you a new perspective on life? Giving you a new way of looking at things and seeing things? And a new impetus to obey exactly what God wants. The Lord Jesus summed it all up when he said, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and your neighbour as yourself. And Paul took, takes those last, that last phrase, those last phrases or the last phrase and he amplifies it and he says, all the commandments that, that relate to loving our neighbour, things like do not envy, do not steal, do not kill, do not commit adultery, all those that relate to it, that's summed up in one phrase. Why? Because God puts in our hearts his love and his love makes the difference. I was attending a Bible study last uh, Monday afternoon and the, the brother who was leading it and teaching it, he had a, a, a model of the Ark of the Covenant and he pulled out two little uh, or uh, uh, some artificial um, imitations but miniature and one was of the two uh, stones of the, of the commandments. And he was explaining what it's all about. Do you know why the commandments are, according to the Bible, written on two? Number one, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. All the commands, commands that relate to our relationship with God are, were on one tablet. And the second tablet dealt with loving your neighbour as yourself. All the commands that relate to your relationship with your neighbour. And so, right back in the... Law of Moses, it speaks about the commands being written on two tablets. One describing our relationship with God, the other describing our relationship with our neighbour. And how in the world can we fulfil commands like that? Because God makes such a change within us that we have in our hearts and in our lives a different attitude where once we were filled with the desire to do and to accomplish and to succeed, now we're filled with the desire 
to do what? Love. Love for God, love for our neighbors, love for our family, love for our friends, love for even our enemies. It's love. That's the core of the work of the Holy Spirit within us. And that's the core of the law. The core of the law is simply to love as God would have us love. That's why Christ, who puts his love in our hearts, is the end of the law, so that there's righteousness for everyone who believes. Moses described in this way the righteousness that is by the law. The man who does these things will live by them. And that righteousness is by faith. It says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend to heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the deep to bring Christ up? What does it say? The word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. For it's with your heart that you believe and are justified. It's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. Everyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. That's why there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. Because the heart of the Jew and the heart of the Gentile is where the Lord Jesus Christ works, resides, and exercises his will and his patience and his grace. Yes, my dear friends, in the law, we are, our salvation is perfected. Look at chapter 13 and verse that no debts remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another for he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law this command do not commit adultery do not murder do not steal do not covet whatever other commandment there may be are summed up in this one rule Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. That's exactly it. Exactly what we've just been saying. It's because of the love of God that has been put in our hearts that we are able to love one another the way that God intends. Because you see, now we've moved out from being under the sovereignty of law to being under the ark of God's grace. It's God's grace that works in us, enables us, transforms us. It's the it's God's grace that makes us into the people that he wants us to be. When we talk about grace, we're talking about a divine initiative. Look at chapter 5 and verse 15 in the following verses. Chapter 5 and verse 15. 
The gift is not like the trespass. For if many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of that one man overflow to the many? Again, the gift of God is not like the result of one man's sin. Judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. See, the grace of God is God's gift to us. Amen. It's not something that we have worked for, earned, or in some way persuaded God to exercise towards us or to treat us. No, the, the grace of God is God's gracious... Oh, there I am again, the same word. It's God's unmerited gift towards us. We didn't deserve it. If anything, we deserve to be condemned because we broke his law. But what does God say? My grace is sufficient for you. Oh, my dear friends, you may not have a high opinion of yourself, but God sees what you can be. You may not have achieved much, but God sees what you can do. Your thought life may be troubling you and plaguing you at times. And you think, oh God, why do I keep thinking like that? And then God changes your mind and changes your thinking. And you begin to see things from a new perspective and a new way because God is at work. In you. It's the grace of God, the kindness, the love, the gift, the unlimited favor of God that enables you and me to be the people that he wants us to be. Not something in ourselves and not something that we have done. It's a divine initiative. God took the initiative we didn't have to come and plead with him to help us. He's the one who came to us and pleaded with us. Like the shepherd looking for the lost sheep. He doesn't just stand there and saying, okay, sheep, where are you? You just got to bleat and I'll come for you. Come on, bleat. Bleat? No. No, he goes out into the fields, into the woods, wherever. And he calls for the sheep. And the sheep responds. The woman looking for the lost coin doesn't just stand at the door and say, okay, coin, where are you? Coming out the dust. Jump up. Jump out. That'd be some coin if it did. <laughs> no, it's obvious. The Lord Jesus Christ uses that illustration to make us aware that even when we don't know that he's looking for us, he's looking for us. He's ready. And even if we do think, I should return, I should go back to my father like the lost son, we find out that the father was scanning the horizon already 
looking for us, waiting for us. Oh yes, some of us did seek the Lord and that's how we were found. But what we didn't realize was that God had been looking for us all the time. He'd been seeking us. He'd been trying in different ways, pulling on our heartstrings, moving things around, sometimes even moving friends out of our lives that were going to prove a hindrance so that we would eventually turn to him. I was in the Royal Air Force. I was enjoying serving. And then came an epidemic back in 19. <clears throat> and I caught it. It made me so ill. They discharged me from the Royal Air Force. And I thought, what am I going to do? The very day my final discharge notice came through was the day when God found me. I'd been sent home three weeks earlier to try and find a job that I could do despite my problems, my health problems remaining from the epidemic. And I went to night school because I dropped out of school when I was 15 and I had no high school diploma. Nobody wanted to hire a high school dropout. Who would? So I went to night school to try and at least complete some education. And there I met a young Christian man and God spoke to me through him. He was the only person who befriended me. I knew nobody when I went back home. No one wanted to know me. I'd been kicked out of the Air Force medically unfit and one night the very day that my final discharge papers became effective 27th day of November 19 <clears throat> and they that very day he said to me why don't you ask the Lord Jesus Christ to forgive you. Pray a prayer like this. God be merciful to me, a sinner. And so I went home and knelt by my bedside. And I prayed that prayer and nothing happened. I said it a second time. I still didn't feel anything. I said... If there really is a God, it's about time you were listening. I'm going to say it a third time. And if you don't listen this time, I will never, ever pray again. And so I said it the third time. And as I did, a presence filled my little bedroom. And I knew that he had heard my prayer. He'd been looking for me all through the years. He'd been taking away all the different things that I relied upon. I thought I'd got a great career in the Air Force. I'd even been asked if I would like to prepare 
for a special role in the Air Force. I was ready for that when the epidemic came. Oh yes, I was going to be one of the guys that had been making TV programs about my type of, of work. And what happened? God took it all away. Why? Because he wanted me to know him. And the only way to know him was a hard way, a difficult way, but a way that changed me from the inside out. And I became a new creation in Christ Jesus. He's still working on me, but he took the initiative. He took the initiative. You see, God's grace is God's choice in working in you and in me. Look at chapter 4 and verse 16. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. Not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. Abraham, he's already said, was justified by faith. He had faith before he ever knew anything about the law. It's written, I've made you the father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed. The God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. Yes, it's divine choice. It is God's choice. That's why he intervened in your life. He chose to do so. That's why he changed you. He chose to do so. That's why he transformed your situation. He chose to do so. Why? Because he's got an even greater future ahead than you could ever have had by your own efforts and by your own relationships. And what's the relationship between grace and law? Well, let's look at chapter 7 and verse 6. Chapter 7 and verse 6. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we've been released from the law. He uses the example of the, the woman who is married under the law. She's bound to her husband as long as they both shall live. That's what the marriage vows include. But if the husband dies, then she's free to marry whoever touches her heart. If she breaks her vow, and goes off with another man, she's an adulteress. But no, if her husband's gone, she's free. By dying to what once bound us, we've been released from the law, so that we may serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. We're no longer bound by what bound us. We are bound to follow the Holy Spirit because he is the one who applies the grace of God 
And under the grace of God, we are free to serve God however he chooses. What shall we say then? Chapter 6, verse 1. Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? No. We are under the grace, the unmerited favor of God, so that now we may serve in a new way, in the new power that God himself gives. This is our responsibility as humans. Look at chapter 5 and verse 15. The gift is not like the trespass. If the many died by the trespass of one, one, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? It's because of God's grace that we've received our new life in Christ Jesus. And it's because of God's grace that we are now enabled to live in a way that would have been absolutely impossible in the old way and in the old life. We couldn't have done it. We couldn't have done the things that, we're, that we do if it wasn't for the grace of God. It's God who's made it possible. And my dear friends, he hasn't finished with us yet. As long as we're upon this earth, we are under the grace of God. And whatever God's plan is, he has got it all worked out to fulfill his will and to glorify his name and to become the people that he fully wants us to be. Look at chapter 15 and verse 15. Chapter 15 and verse 15, he, he says, I've written to you quite boldly on some points as if to remind you of them again because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles with the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God. Wow. He who once persecuted the church and killed the Christians, now by the grace of God, has the responsibility of proclaiming the gospel and bringing thousands to faith in Christ. Sometimes you kind of wonder, did the number of people who are converted under Christ's ministry exceed the number of people who he persecuted and killed. It didn't just exceed it. It multiplied it many, many, many times over. Because those who he persecuted went to be with the Lord and were rejoicing in heaven. Those who he proclaimed the gospel to they went out into other parts of the world and shared the gospel with other believers. Yes, Paul had never been to Rome, but there were many working there. As chapter 16 discloses, that Paul knew, that Paul had worked with, that had even come to Christ during Paul's ministry. We can see some of the impact 
that some of those believers who are now in Rome had had upon Paul, or there's even some of his own family members. Reluctantly, he admits that they were once this Andronicus, chapter 16, verse 7, Andronicus and Unius, my relatives who have been in prison with me, they're outstanding among the apostles and they were in Christ before I was. They were believers before he was. How did Paul get saved on that Damascus road? People like Andronicus and Unius were praying for him. He didn't know it. And in fact, Luke doesn't even acknowledge it when he writes Acts. But Paul admits it when he writes to the Romans. He says, yes, they were in Christ before I was. They knew that I was a persecutor. Maybe it was because he saw them in Christ and what was happening in their lives that he did some of the persecuting. Sometimes that can happen at first. But then God opens the door to our hearts and we realize that we belong to him and have the opportunity of serving him ourselves. It's because of the grace back in 1515. Uh, it's because of the grace of, that God gave us that we become a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles so that they too might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Oh, my dear friends, I've sometimes wondered, when we get to heaven and God shows us all who we have influenced in our lives here upon earth, I wonder what we'll feel about that. Will there be hundreds of thousands or scores or tens or just one or two? That doesn't matter. What matters is we let God use us. We let God flow through us and touch the lives of others. And who knows how many more lives are going to be touched by you because of the grace of God. God has given you grace to be his servant here and now. In conclusion, let me say we're kept by the grace of God. It's the grace of God that keeps us from sin. Chapter 5 and verse 2. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. We're standing by the grace of God. He kept us. He's done it. He's worked in us. He's enabled us. We don't stand by our own efforts. We stand by the grace of God and by what he has done in our lives. And we're victorious. 
by his grace. Look at chapter 6 and verse 14. Sin shall not be your master because you're not under law. Not under your own efforts. Not trying to fulfill God's will by yourself. No, you're not under law. (laughs) You're under grace. The grace of God enables you and me to live victorious lives here upon earth. It's all by the grace of God. Because as we saw in chapter 15, verse 15, we are serving by his grace. I pray that as we depart from this place, we will go forth committed to serving God by his grace. Every opportunity God gives you to serve him, he will also give you the strength and the power to do it. He's not saying, do it if you can. Let's see what you can do. He's saying, I'm doing it through you. I'm doing it with you. I'm the one who's providing you all the strength and all the power and all that you need to fulfill my will. Paul looked back over 30 years of ministry and he said, it wasn't Paul, it was God. It was all by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. How many years are you going to look back on? And how many years are you looking forward to? I don't know how long any one of us will live, but what I do know is this, God will give you all the opportunities he wants you to have and all the strength and the power and the wisdom and the grace to fulfill his will in those opportunities.